Amen and good morning to you. Um, this morning we'll be in Acts chapter 15 and we'll start right in verse 19. And so if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to turn there. Um, we'll be in there all morning uh, taking a look at that passage. And so it's important that you meet me there. Uh, once again, that's Acts 19, or excuse me, Acts 15, verse 19 through 35. Uh, if this is your first time with us, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I'm the lead pastor here at FAC. It's always a joy and honor and really a privilege to be here with you. And uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I would love that opportunity after service. I would just invite you to come up and join me and uh, just say hello, and um, I'd love to get a, to know you a little bit uh, better. Um, feel free to make yourself known to me and come up after service. Um, on a personal note, in the lives of the Kazarowski family, uh, I want to update you in that uh, Sarah is currently nine months pregnant, and uh, we could be having a baby any day now, uh, which we're very, very excited about. And so if I disappear halfway through the sermon... Um, you'll know why, and uh, you'll just figure it out from there. I have important things to get to if that's the case. Roger Giles, actually, before service, said he would take up the service. Uh, and so Roger's in charge if I have to disappear. And um, he's probably embarrassed that I even mentioned that. If you don't know Roger, you should know Roger. And I'll just leave it at that. Before we read our passage, it would serve us well to um, recap where we've been the last several weeks because we enter our, our reading right in the middle of um, James talking. And so it might not make sense to us. Uh, we might be a tad bit lost. Uh, so let me try and catch you up to speed if you haven't been with us or listened to the sermons the last couple of weeks. Um, at the beginning of Acts chapter 15, we were in the city of Antioch, uh, which is north of Jerusalem. And in Antioch, there were some believers who were preaching some pretty sketchy things. They were telling people that the Gentiles or the non-Jewish people had to be circumcised before they were saved. In other words, what I've mentioned in weeks past is that these Jewish people were teaching that Gentiles had to become Jewish before they became Christian. And this obviously didn't sit well with Paul and Barnabas. So Paul and Barnabas actually traveled to, to Jerusalem to try and track down the origin of this teaching. They wanted to cut it off at its root. And once they arrived in Jerusalem, they did indeed find a group of people, of believers, that insisted that the Gentiles must follow the law of Moses, that they must be circumcised, that they must become Jewish before they become Christians in order to be saved. And this disagreement prompted a very formal debate that has come, we come to know it as the Jerusalem Council. And at this council, it was determined that the Gentiles actually did not need to do these things to be saved, but that they are saved by the grace of Jesus, just like the Jewish population. They were not required to follow a list of guidelines in order to be saved as if they could somehow earn their salvation. No, Jesus saves them just as they are. And this decision was uh, determined not by human wisdom. It's not like they, uh, like it was a democracy and they held a formal vote and everybody voted on, on, on whether the Gentiles should have to do this or not. 
It wasn't human wisdom. It wasn't just somebody's idea. No, they determined this to be the case. The, the, the decision was determined based on God's activity and God's word. Based on what God has clearly done in the past and is still doing, and based on what God has clearly said. And so we pick up our text Today, at that moment that the decision is made, that it's declared by James, who kind of functions as the chairman of this uh, formal debate. Uh, however, there are some things that he feels the Gentiles need to be conscious of. And in our passage, the Christian leaders send a letter back to them in Antioch to inform them um, of their decision and then what these other guidelines are uh, that they should follow. Let's take a look at it. Uh, Together, starting in verse 19, this is what James says. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, leading uh, men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Would you pray with me before we begin? Heavenly Father, we live in a world of changeable things. Our world is often shaken and tossed about by the waves of our brokenness. It is evident to us that there are many things we try to stand on that are like shifting sand. However, we know and profess that Christ and his word remain unchanged and remain unshaken. And this is the solid rock by which we stand in such a volatile world. Would your spirit now form our hearts according to your word? 
In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. This is a popular phrase. You've probably heard it. And it's actually become somewhat of an anthem for many, many believers. Uh, It originated back in the 17th century. There's some uh, debate of who originally coined the phrase. And uh, there's even some misattribution out there. But we can pinpoint that it came at least from the early 1600s specifically during the Thirty Years' War uh, in Europe. Um, that specific conflict, the, Europe, the, the Thirty Years' War in Europe, actually developed from religious tensions, specifically between Catholics and Protestants. It, it was a very dark and bloody time in European history. It's somewhat of a black mark. It makes sense that someone who advocates for peace would declare that phrase, right? In essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. One church historian actually says that that phrase is the watchword of Christian peacemakers. How it's used today by believers encourages us to agree, be unified in the essentials. We need to be unified in the non-negotiables the things that are necessary uh, for our faith. But in the same way, we also need to be able to extend liberty in the non-essentials. I want you to notice that it's not the unimportant things. These are still very important things, just merely the non-essential things. Things where two different believers could take uh, two different sides of the, of the coin, have two different sets of con- convictions, be adamantly in disagreement with one another, yet still remain unified in, in Christ. And then in all matters, we must have charity, or in other words, kindness. In everything we do, we should have kindness or love towards one another in our dealings with all people at all times. In our faith, there are essentials or what many people would call absolutes. These are topics or things that we absolutely have to believe in order to be saved. Otherwise, you are outside of the family of God. For instance, we absolutely have to believe that there is a God. And we absolutely have to believe that Jesus is God and that Jesus died and rose again for the redemption of our sins. Those are absolutes in our faith. We can't believe anything other than that to be in God's family. And there's more absolutes in our faith, but those are some of the main ones. But then in our faith, there's some gray area. There's some non-essential things or what many people would call convictions This would include things like how we baptize people, how we preach, how we worship through music. These are things that you and I, we have freedom to disagree on, yet we remain in God's family. This whole subject and this whole phrase really is an appetizer for the main course of our passage today. It sets the table 
for what's taught here in Acts 15. Really, as we've been traveling through this, Acts 15 teaches us how to be unified in the essentials and then how to extend liberty in the non-essentials. So I want to take a look at our passage. It seems a little strange at first glance because in the Jerusalem council that we've studied the, the last two weeks, they just determined that we are saved by grace and nothing else. There is nothing that we have to do to earn our salvation. There is no set of guidelines that we need to follow to be saved. That's what we've looked at the last several weeks. And James gets up in the Jerusalem Council and he affirms this. Take a look at how bizarre this is, though. He gets up in verse 19 and says that we should not trouble the Gentiles for they turn to God. Basically, he's saying we should not trouble them with a list of guidelines that they need to follow. And then in the very next verse, he gives them a list of guidelines. And so you look at this and say, well, this, this seems to contradict itself at first glance. What is going on here? But this is an excellent example of the difference between the essentials, what you need to believe and know to be saved, and the non-essentials. The list that James gives to the Gentiles in this letter are not conditions of their salvation. You could easily look at this and say, wait a minute, is this some kind of bait and switch? You just told me I didn't have to do anything, and now you're telling me i got to do something. No, this list is not uh, rules that they must follow in order to be saved. No, No, James affirms that their salvation was already attained by Jesus and his work. Their salvation is secured by Christ. But then James says, however, here are some things that you need to be conscious of. Here are a list of non-essential things that it would do you well to follow. That's what the end of the letter says, right? They, They explain it, what the decision was. They explain the guidelines, and then they get to the very end of the letter to the Gentiles and said, it would be, it would do you well, to follow these. Or in other words, it would, this is right. This is the right thing for you to do. What I'd like to do here with the rest of our time together is explain what these four guidelines are in their context. And then I want to explain the purpose behind these guidelines. Why did uh, James specifically want the Gentiles to follow these guidelines? And then we'll land the plane and see how this applies to us today. And so I want to walk through these four guidelines in the order that's provided to us actually down in verse 29. The order gets switched uh, in the letter, uh, but verse 29 is the order that I want to look at. In verse 28, um, it's written for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And then verse 29, he, he shares what the four guidelines are. It says, you abstain from what has been uh, sacrificed to idols that you would abstain from blood, number two. Number three, that you would abstain from what has been strangled. And then finally, number four, uh, that you would abstain from sexual immorality. Um, Those seem like very odd and random requests. You read that in our context and our culture and think, what in the world is going on in this first century uh, culture? Uh, Refrain from blood? 
What do you mean? Refrain from things that have been strangled? Like Halloween's right around the corner. That's what it sounds like. We're talking about this here between the blood and the strangling and the sacrifice. And this is a very odd thing. Let me encourage you to know that these are actually much more connected than we may initially realize. And so let's walk through them together. Number one, first, they were instructed to abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. Take note that the guideline wasn't specifically talking about idol sacrifice. The guideline is not abstain from idol sacrifice. That was just a given. But rather it's abstain from the things that have been sacrificed to idols. It was a common practice in that culture that animals would be sacrificed to pagan idols in pagan temples. And then they would take the meat from that animal, and it would be sold later in the marketplace for consumption. And so what James is asking the Gentiles to do is to avoid any kind of meat, specifically consuming meat that had been a part of pagan idol sacrifice. The Jewish people were strictly prohibited from sacrificing to pagan idols, and they considered the meat defiled if it was used in such a way. In their minds, the meat was spoiled. It was no good. So the Jews would have nothing to do with such meat because they believed that eating the meat um, that had been previously sacrificed to idols was somewhat of an affirmation of idol worship. Right? One commentator says that they felt like they were taking part in what he defined uh, second-hand idolatry. Right, there's this saying, if we eat the meat that was sacrificed, this is our stamp of approval of what happened to such an animal. And this was a hot debate between the Jews and the Gentiles in that first century because the Gentiles rejected the notion that, that such meat was tainted. They felt that they could eat meat that was sacrificed to the idols without actually endorsing idolatry. They're sitting there saying, that's a perfectly good filet mignon. <laughs> We just can't put it to waste. Somebody better eat it, right? This is how they felt. This may seem strange to us in in modern society to debate what we eat and what we don't eat because if you go to Texas Roadhouse for lunch after service, I can all but guarantee that the T-bone steak that you're going to order wasn't sacrificed in pagan idolatry. This is just not something that happens in our context. And in our culture, this is hard to understand. The best modern day illustration that I can think of um, happened probably a decade ago, maybe eight or nine years ago um, with, with Starbucks. Starbucks had come out as a company and basically endorsed um, same-sex marriage. They came out and said, we affirm this and we encourage this and we're going to put resources to this. And there were actually Christian groups that were uh, so up in arms about this that they called for, for boycotts of Starbucks coffee. They're saying, if you, if you drink Starbucks coffee, you are affirming what they are affirming. And then all of a sudden, the debate became within Christian circles. Can I drink Starbucks or should I avoid it? What's, what's the biblical answer? Because you have some people saying, it's, in my conscience, I cannot drink Starbucks coffee. And then you had another faction of believers that said, 
yo, I need my coffee in the morning. <laughs> and I really like Starbucks. And my conscience allows me to, to have it. And so that kind of debate is what was happening here with the food laws of like, can we eat it or, or can we not? And, and there's like legitimate answers on both sides. To the first century believers, this conflict of whether you could eat meat or not was a legitimate issue. And so James instructs the Gentiles, hey, just, hey, would you just refrain from eating what has been offered to a sacrifice, as a sacrifice to an idol in this instance? Can you, can you just um, be aware? This is something you need to be sensitive about. Second, James advises them to abstain from blood. Once again, this sounds very odd. Like, what do you mean blood? Uh, what, what, what does that mean? But once again, in context, James is specifically referring to the consumption of blood. This is most likely a callback to Leviticus 17, uh, verses 10 through 14. That passage goes into detail about how the Israelites were to handle blood. And in that passage, Israel is commanded to refrain from eating blood. And the reason given is actually in Leviticus 17, 11. Listen to what God says. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. To the Jewish people, there was a key association between blood and life. Blood represented life. Blood pointed to life. To have blood was to have life. Blood is the equivalent of life for the Jewish people, and not just physically, but spiritually. According to that verse that I just read, Israel is atoned by blood. We, as 21st century believers, are atoned by blood. Reparations are made between us and God. How? Through blood. For the Israelites, it was the sacrifice of an animal. For us as believers, it was the sacrifice of Jesus. It's through blood that we find life. Our sinful actions lead to death, and blood brings life. To the ancient Israelite, the blood of an animal who had been sacrificed for their sins had a very special and significant meaning. There was a sacredness to blood and to consume it would be an atrocity for the Jewish people. And so for this reason, James, once again, goes to the Gentiles and says, hey, just be conscious of this. Can you be sensitive to this and just refrain from consuming blood? Third, James tells them to abstain from what has been strangled. Uh, This one is actually closely related to the last guideline. According to the Mosaic law, whenever you would kill an animal for a sacrifice, you had to kill it a certain uh, specific way so that you could drain the blood out because you didn't want to consume blood. You actually, the animal, you had to slit its throat. This was the proper way of sacrificing an animal. And so here's the thought process here. If the animal has been strangled, that means that there have been no open wounds on the sacrifice. 
And if there are no open wounds on the sacrifice, you could not properly drain the blood out of the animal. Thus you have a, a, a meat that still has blood in it, and these animals were not properly sacrificed. And so James, once again, says, hey guys, can you just be conscious of this? Can you just refrain from things that are strangled because of what the Jews think and what they believe? And then finally, the fourth guideline for the Gentiles in this letter, they are instructed to abstain from sexual immorality. Uh, This one is pretty straightforward. It doesn't really need explanation of what James is asking them to abstain from. However, what is odd is its inclusion in the list. This one doesn't seem to be as closely related as the other three are. Uh, The first three are very easy to connect the dots, but this feels a little random to us. It it feels like sexual immorality kind of belongs in a category uh, in itself, uh, and it appears out of place. Even the commentators that I read express confusion about this, and so uh, we'll do our best. Um, it might James might be referring to Leviticus 17 and 18 as a whole. Because if you go to that passage in the Old Testament, um, in, in the, the Mosaic Law, it talks about sacrifice, and it talks about blood and the proper way to sacrifice and how blood atones. And then immediately following that discussion, the law goes in to talk about sexual immorality. And so there is a connection there. Um, another thought of what this could be is that these specific prohibitions may be in relation to pagan temple feasts. In pagan temple worship, there was actually a very close relationship between um, eating food that had been sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. Typically, if that was your scene, if that's where you would go, it was common for those things to happen together and to happen in the same context because pagan temple worship included elements of both. And this was an abomination to the Jews. So once again... James says, please, Gentiles, for the sake of the Jewish people, would you just abstain from sexual immorality? These are the four things that they were asking the Gentiles to follow. Uh, And while they are connected, and maybe more connected than we initially thought, they still seem somewhat arbitrary. Like if anybody asks me to follow rules, my first question to them is why? (laughs) Why do I need to follow this rule? What's the purpose of this rule? Because if there is not a proper purpose for our rules and our guidelines, and we're only following rules for the sake of following rules, that actually turns into legalism, which is bad. So we, we, should, we shouldn't just have rules for the sake of having rules. No, there should be a purpose behind these rules. And so, James, what is the purpose of these guidelines? Why are you asking the Gentiles to follow these Um, restrictions. James, are these guidelines in place just so the Jewish people can hold the Gentiles under their thumbs? No, not at all. There actually is an answer in, in the text, and it's easy to miss, but it's found in verse 21. Take a look at that. That's the reason, uh, the, the basis for these guidelines. In verse 19, James tells everyone, hey, we shouldn't trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from these four things. Why? Verse 21, for from 
ancient generations. Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has, he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The basis for these guidelines, the purpose behind their request, is because there are people in every city since the ancient times who proclaim the law of Moses and still read him every single week on the Sabbath. In other words, James is saying to the Gentiles, hey, no matter where you are, you are going to come across Jewish people. Wherever you are, you are going to come across Jewish people who are still struggling with these things. And you should be sensitive to that. Imagine a scenario with me. Jews and Gentiles, have, uh, having come to a saving understanding of Jesus, are now uh, given the Holy Spirit, and they are bonded together as one body. There is no distinction anymore between Jew and Gentile. They have come together as one body, but they come together from two radically different cultures, from two radically different backgrounds. But they are now included in the same community, God's community. In this early church, one of the strongest elements or characteristics of community life in a body of believers was table fellowship getting together and having a meal with each other. Eating together is a very extremely important aspect of community uh, of a community of faith. It should still be today. When we get together and when we enjoy a meal to, together, we are not only filling our bodies, but we are filling our spirits and enjoying one another's company. I got to tell you, one of my favorite things to do with ministry is go out and eat food with somebody. And it's not because I love food so much. It's because I love you guys so much. And I want to know you, and I want you to know me, and I want to be in your life, and I want you to be in my life. And that just naturally happens when we eat together. And so here's the scenario. Once again, imagine in that first century that you grew up Jewish. And then you became a Christian. And you know that you are no longer bound by the law of Moses. You know that these laws can't save you that Jesus did through his work. But this is all I've ever known. And this is all I've ever eaten. And you know what? I just feel more comfortable still following some of these food laws. I know that it's not a yoke on me anymore, a burden on me anymore, but this is just what I'm used to, and I'd like to keep doing that. My conscience just doesn't feel right yet, eating meat that had been previously sacrificed to idols with blood in it. However, you've just joined a new church. You've joined a church in the area and you've made new family friends who just happen to be Gentiles. And the Gentiles invite you over for a meal because this is what believers should do, inviting others into their homes for a meal. And when you arrive at their house, you come to find that the main course is a giant slab of sirloin steak cooked medium rare. What are you going to do? Imagine how uncomfortable that would be. 
if you put yourself in their shoes. Because I am either going to go against my conscience, I'm, going, I'm, going, I'm forced to go against what I frankly don't feel comfortable to do, or I'm going to break table fellowship and reject the Gentile. What do I do? Eating together within a fellowship of believers is important, but nobody wants to show up to the church potluck unsure if there's food there that you can't eat. So you have to know that these guidelines were put in place not to impose some kind of legalism on the Gentiles, but rather to promote unity among the body of believers. These actions are taken for the sake of the church, for the unity of the church. James is saying, hey, can we just agree to to honor the convictions of others so that your Jewish brothers and sisters won't stumble? If there's going to be unity and open-hearted fellowship, James says, you must be sensitive to the convictions of others. You must be aware and have sensitivity to what we call scruples. With that, let's bridge the gap. Right? You look at this and say, well, what does this matter to me today? How does this apply to me right now? Am I still bound by these guidelines as Gentiles? Should I take this literally? Because personally, I don't know about you, I like a good medium rare steak. When they serve that, it better be bloody. That's my personal preference. And so as I read this, I think, do I have to, do I have to follow this? That'd be a lot to give up. In Bible study, we have to remember that this were, these were real documents sent to a specific group of people in a specific place at a specific time. And we have to understand um, what passages mean for them first before we determine what it means for us. And we have determined what it means for them. And we understand that the specific guidelines on food was a cultural appeal due to the fact that these Gentiles were surrounded by Jews who still read the law of Moses. And so for us, several thousand years later, in a different culture and in a different context, I would actually say that we are not bound to these rules based on why they were bound to them. I would actually say that we aren't bound specifically to three of them. There is one that we're still bound to, and that's the one on sexual immorality. And here's the reason why. You might be thinking, well, Pastor Mike, you're just picking and choosing now which ones you want and which ones you don't want gives. No, here is the reason why we are still bound to this one. It's a side note. It just has to be said because I don't want, I want to be very clear uh, in what I'm saying here. Here's the reason why. One of the rules in biblical interpretation is that the Bible best interprets itself. The Bible best interprets itself. And so whenever you come across a text or a verse or a chapter or even a book of the Bible, you have to ask the question, is this the only thing that the whole Bible says about this topic? Is there, is there anything else that the Bible says about this specific text? As we consider doctrine and truth and issues, you need to account for what all of Scripture says about a topic. 
As far as these guidelines are concerned, apart from only one other instance in Acts, these food regulations are never mentioned again to the Gentiles. Even more so, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul comes out and claims, hey, it's okay to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. I have a freedom to eat that meat. However, later on in 1 Corinthians, maybe in that even, I can't remember off the top of my head, it's either that chapter or the chapter to follow, Paul immediately condemns sexual immorality. And if if you broaden the scope to all of Scripture, sexual immorality is universally condemned throughout all of Scripture. And so that's the reason why we are still bound to that one guideline out of these four, but the other three we are not. It's, it's, It's very specific. And we are not specifically bound to those food guidelines. However, we are bound to the principle of this passage, what the passage is communicating. The principle that it would do us well It would be right of us to be sensitive to the convictions of others for the sake of unity. As long as the gospel isn't compromised, as long as the essentials are in place, I can and should budge on the non-essentials. That's the attitude of Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. It's there that Paul says, hey, I have the right to eat this meat. I have a freedom. I'm absolutely allowed. But if it's going to cause my brother to stumble, I will not eat the meat. I have a freedom. I have a right. But if it's going to cause you to stumble, I won't do it. No, instead, I want to be all things to all people. According to John Newton, the 18th century pastor and hymn writer, Um, We need to be like Paul, who Newton says was an iron pillar when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the essentials of our faith. But we also need to be a soft reed in the wind when it comes to the non-essentials. This is why this is so important, because no two people in this room will have identical convictions. And if we remain an iron pillar in the non-essentials, it will cause fragmentation. It will cause division in the church. If we are so adamant about holding on to our own uh, non-essential convictions, and we are so adamant about enforcing others to hold to these same convictions as well, it will divide the church. One of the most pervasive examples of this in the church at this moment is whether or not we should have to wear masks during the pandemic. There there is a faction of believers who think that we should, and they feel very strongly about it. And then there is a faction of believers who think that we shouldn't have to, and they feel strongly about it, that they have their freedoms, they have their rights, We shouldn't have to wear the masks. I will be completely honest with you on where I'm at with this issue. I hate wearing the mask. It drives me nuts. And frankly, me personally, I would feel absolutely comfortable walking into a room full of people 
without wearing a mask. I, I would be comfortable. I would not be nervous in the least bit. But I know for fact that there are people within our church who are struggling greatly with the pandemic, who are really struggling with those who don't want to wear a mask. And so I wear a mask for the sake of my brothers and sisters, not for my own sake. I will honor those who have a different conviction from mine, and I will gladly wear a mask if this is one way I can show them love. You are free to hold your convictions. You are free to follow your convictions. But in the Christian walk, in Scripture, the emphasis is never the freedom that I have in my convictions. No, the emphasis is always the humility, the self-denial that I must have to meet others at their convictions. I've given you some very specific examples, but I'd like to land the plane here by offering up really a process. This is the big take home of what I can do today to apply this to my life. This is a process that I believe every believer should go through when determining how to act, when we consider what we should do or not do. There are some questions that we should ask ourselves. Uh, I have a flow chart for you. Um, who doesn't love a good quality flow chart, right? Uh, and I'll admit that this was not original to me. I shamelessly stole this off of one of my friend's Instagram stories. And I believe that he shamelessly stole it from another Christian author named Robert Vaughn. Just want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, but this is the process as believers uh, that we should go through in Christian decision-making. And it's really based on 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. I wish we had the time to go through those passages. We don't. It would be great follow-up homework for you this week to go home and read and study those passages on your own time. But once again, these are the gates that our minds should walk through when making decisions uh, about our actions. The first question is, does the Bible allow it? If so, then you ask the question, does my conscience allow it? A specific example of something that might not make it through this gate is actually uh, the consumption of alcohol. Believe it or not, the Bible permits the consumption of alcohol. In some regards, it actually encourages it. Jesus consumed alcohol. But there are some people in their conscience, whether it's based on history, whether it's based on uh, perhaps broken families, who sit there and say, in my conscience, I cannot consume this. But there are others who uh, have, have no problem with it at all. Um, the, the, I want to be clear. The Bible does um, condemn drunkenness. Don't give yourself over to drunkenness, but you are allowed to have a, a glass of wine if you are not uh, consumed by it, if you are not drunk by it. If your conscience allows you to do something, though, uh, that does not mean you necessarily have the green light to enjoy such a freedom. There are three more questions to consider in areas of freedom. First, what is the effect on other Christians? knowing that love is more important than knowledge. If I order a beer, how is this going to affect my brother who's sitting across the table from me? 
Second, what is the effect on non-Christians knowing that the gospel is more important than our rights? Perhaps this is what's happening in Acts 15. Perhaps James is saying, look, there are, you will be exposed to Jewish people throughout the whole world because every city declares the law of Moses and you better follow these guidelines so that you can at least get a foot in the door. If you don't do these things, you're not going to earn their right to speak. They're going to dismiss you before the conversation even starts. A modern-day specific example that we need to consider in this question which is rather uncomfortable for me to even talk about, though, is how we as believers handle our politics. Right? I, I encourage you to have convictions politically that are based on truth and Scripture. I strongly encourage you to go vote next week and to vote in a way that aligns with Scripture. But please know that there are non-believers that are absolutely turned off to the truth of the gospel because of how we as believers have handled our politics. I have spoken with non-Christians before that have told me Christians have lost their credibility because of how they handle their politics. I'm not telling you you have to change your convictions. What I am asking is that you would be gracious and respectful to those non-believers who hold differing views than you in hopes that you would have an opportunity to lead them to Jesus. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. I want to be all things to all people so that I may save some. And finally, third, what is the effect on my own spiritual life? Knowing that spiritual health is more important than freedom. Really, all of these questions, these, these gates, if you will, point and promote self-denial. All Christian activity should be fueled with the aim of self-denial. We should be willing to lay down our personal convictions and, and, and activity for the sake of the whole body, for the sake of others. And the strongest example of this, the model to which we look to in life, is Christ himself. Jesus carried out the ultimate act of self-denial for the sake of the whole. It's Philippians 2. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus denied himself for you. And so I would ask you to consider, are you willing to deny yourself for Christ and for the body of believers? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we are a broken mess. My first reaction, my my first um, decisions, my first thoughts always go to what's best for me. So Lord, I I would ask that you, you would just break me of that. 
that as a church, as a body of believers, you would break us of that mentality to always think about ourselves first. That, that, that our natural reaction would be one of self-denial. Lord, because if it's our natural reaction to, to, to deny ourselves, then we know that the Spirit is within us and moving us and transforming us. We know that we're taking on the likeness of your Son, Jesus. So would you do that, Father? I thank you for our convictions, these important things that we need to make decisions on. But I would ask, Father, that we would hold them loosely for the sake of something greater, the unity of the body. We praise you, Lord, that Christ denied himself for us. We cling to that. In your holy name I pray. Amen.